Hi, my name is Andy Chamberlain. I'm a writer and creative writing tutor, and you are listening to the Creative Writers Toolbelt, the podcast that gives you practical, accessible advice that you can apply straight away to your own writing. And welcome to episode 106 of the Creative Writers Toolbelt. It's been quite a while since I released an episode of the podcast, and I have to say it is a pleasure to be creating something and putting it out there for you guys again. So a little bit about what I've been up to. I've been busy delivering a conference just this last weekend with my friend Wendy H. Jones. I've also been working on my book, The Creative Writers Toolbelt Handbook, which most of you know is now published and contains the best advice and insight from the first 100 episodes of the podcast. Podcast. That book is available on Amazon and Kindle. It'll be available from other sources as well soon, but that's where it is at the moment. If you've bought a copy, please, please leave a review for me. I'd be ever so grateful. Uh, and if you can put that on Amazon.com, so wherever you've got it, Amazon.com is the place to leave a review. If you think you might be interested in the book, just go to my website, andrewjchamberlain.com, and download a free copy of the Creative Writers Toolbelt Handbook in 60 seconds, which is a little PDF I've put together to show what's in the book. And the other reason why I've been away for a while is because I just simply haven't had anything to say that I think is important enough to take up your precious time. Now, I know that us bloggers and podcasters are supposed to keep putting stuff out there, but honestly, that's not really my way and your time is precious. And so I'll only say something and deliver something to you when I think I have something worth saying. And that time is now because I have something to talk about that I find interesting and I hope you'll find interesting too. So in this episode, we're going to answer the question, what can authors of genre or popular fiction learn from literary fiction? And as ever, I'm going to focus on the practical details. And as ever as well, there's going to be lots of examples. So let's get going with some definitions. What do I mean by literary fiction? Well, literary fiction or mainstream fiction, as it is sometimes called, tends to be fiction that focuses on a quality of prose and a particular style. Writers who are trying to write literary fiction are paying attention to language, style and structure. They're trying to capture and present complex and nuanced ideas. They're trying to present subtle moods and environments. And a lot of this literary fiction doesn't have a genre in the sense of being a story that's focused on science fiction or fantasy or horror or romance and so on. And because that is the case, some people have drawn a distinction between genre-based fiction and literary fiction. But that definition is a bit problematic because, as we shall see, there is some excellent literary fiction out there, which is also genre fiction. So in the past, there has been a bit of an us and them friction between writers and critics of literary fiction and writers and critics of genre fiction. Now, there's a very good episode of the podcast Writing Excuses, which explores this definition of literary fiction and talks a little bit more about that tension. And that is Writing Excuses Season 12 episode five. That episode complements what I'm going to say here very well. So if you have the time and it only takes like 15, 20 minutes, I recommend that you go and listen to that. But in this episode here, I want to focus not on this schism or on definitions, but on the things authors of genre fiction can learn from literature fiction. And I'm going to focus on two main areas with lots of examples in both. And those two areas are drawing on lessons from literary fiction to first of all, express complexity of emotion and feeling, and secondly, to present a deeper sense of setting and place. So let's start by exploring the way in which lit literary fiction expresses complexity of emotion and feeling. 
The commentator and author William H. Coles says this, Emotions are never as effective when described in narrative as when they are illuminated for the reader through action. Action takes more story time to express and is harder to write, but it has less chance of sentimentality and is more easily accepted as credible and true by the reader. Now this comment I think echoes the old advice we all get as writers about showing not telling. And if you've studied much creative writing or you've followed this podcast, you'll know that I believe that showing a situation in our work is always more powerful than just talking about it or telling the reader about it. And we have, as writers, a number of tools to do that, like using sparse and specific detail, like using the senses, like implying and hinting, like using dialogue and humour to convey what's happening. And I cover all these things way back in episodes one to five of the podcast if you want to go back and check that. We can learn more about this process of conveying the nuances and complexities of a character and of their emotional state from literary fiction. So let's consider some examples and see how that works. Here's the first one. It's from a book called A Tree Grows in Brooklyn by Betty Smith. Dear God, she prayed, let me be something every minute of every hour of my life. Now, in these few words, the writer has conveyed this character's desire to live in the present, to have ambition. It also hints at a kind of desperation to be relevant, to be someone, something. The phrase is full of desperate exuberance and existential longing. The writer has been able to achieve all of this in just a few carefully chosen words. And they've given us quite a deep understanding of an aspect of this character, not by describing it, not by telling us, but just giving us a little bit of dialogue. Here's another example from The History of Love by Nicole Krauss. Once upon a time there was a boy who loved a girl and her laughter was a question he wanted to spend his whole life answering. Now this is a simple and elegant example of the dynamic of love and this example is interesting because the author does in fact tell us something at the beginning very simply that this boy loves this girl but then the author enriches and fills out that simple telling with a more profound analogy between laughter and love as a way of illustrating how that dynamic of love works. Again, it's just a few words, but they're chosen with precision and they manage to convey deeply and emotionally all the feelings of this character, his longing to understand her, his longing to make this a life quest. And we can see, we can make that connection between laughter and love in the context of this quote. Here's another one from The Age of Innocence by Edith Wharton. It frightened him to think what must have gone into the making of her eyes. Now this little sentence reflects the fact that the eyes of a person show the most intimate part of their personality. They can reveal so much about a person. And sometimes we might look into eyes and what we see could intrigue us, could attract us, could frighten us, as is the case here. It's said that the eyes are the windows to the soul, and the author is hinting at that here, but extending the concept to imply that the making of a person, including the hard things, including the difficult things that they experience, might somehow be ingrained in the way they look and the way that their eyes are seen by people around them. So here's one more example, and this, in fact, is from a genre novel. It's from Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut. Everything was beautiful and nothing hurt. Now that phrase has just six words in it, but it manages to convey to us something about the character's physical condition potentially, their psychological state, 
it shows how the character probably has been through some kind of trauma and is now rather stunned. Now, the author could have given us an extensive description of his protagonist's circumstances and particularly that character's reaction to those circumstances. But these few words show us so much perfectly. Now, these examples show how four accomplished authors have tackled the challenge of literary fiction. That challenge is to present something that is acutely observed about complex emotions, but manages to convey those emotions accurately and in an evocative way. And not only that, the literary author, rather like a poet, has to master the discipline of using exactly the right words and in a very economic way to be clear, precise and profound about what they're saying. What these authors are doing here is really the opposite of just telling the reader what's going on. They're showing rather than telling, but they're going beyond the normal standard, if you like, of showing rather than telling. They are taking a few incredibly well-chosen words and inviting us to look in to the deepest and most profound parts of the character that they're presenting to us. So let's move on from emotional complexity and look at applying similar techniques to a setting or geographical place. Now, the value of applying literary fiction techniques to enhancing setting comes in at least two ways. First of all, this carefully chosen literary language can create a vivid sense of place, creating a clear impression of it in the reader's mind. And secondly, the language not only gives us a very effective showing of what the place is, it also conjures a mood. It's very evocative. It can convey an emotion, a sense of feeling that the character has and which the reader can identify with. And as readers, we can feel that mood and that emotion through those well-chosen words. In fact, sometimes a setting can be so powerfully presented that it can seem like a character in its own right with its own personality and presence in the book. And one great example of this, which we've looked at a few times in previous episodes of the podcast, is the emotional and atmospheric description that Daphne du Maurier gives us of Manderley, the setting for her novel, Rebecca. Here are the first few lines of that book. Last night I dreamt I went to Manderley again. It seemed to me I stood by the iron gate leading to the drive and for a while I could not enter for the way was barred to me. There was a padlock and chain upon the gate. I called in my dream to the lodge keeper and had no answer. And peering closer through the rusted spokes of the gate I saw that the lodge was uninhabited. No smoke came from the chimney and the little lattice windows gaped forlorn. Then, like all dreamers, I was possessed of a sudden with supernatural powers and passed like a spirit through the barrier before me. The drive wound away in front of me, twisting and turning as it had always done. But as I advanced, I was aware that a change had come upon it. It was narrow and unkempt, not the drive that we had known. At first I was puzzled and did not understand, and it was only when I bent my head to avoid the low-swinging branch of a tree that I realised what had happened. Nature had come into her own again, and little by little, in her stealthy, insidious way, had encroached upon the drive with long, tenacious fingers. The woods, always a menace even in the past, had triumphed in the end. They crowded, dark and uncontrolled, to the borders of the drive." Now, this passage gives us so many elements, that sense of something dark, that sense potentially of something tragic having happened, a strong, supernatural, ethereal sense hanging over this place that the author is describing, a sense of abandonment, the personification of the natural and how nature is gradually, insidiously, steadily taking over this place. The tone is dark, the setting is dark, and that's presented most strongly to us in the fact that this is a journey that's happening in a dream 
and at night. And so Daphne du Maurier has created for us with these carefully chosen words, not just a setting, but a kind of character with its own personality, its own mood, its own feeling. Now, here's another example. And again, it's from genre fiction. This is from J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. And in this little example, we see Sam Gamgee powerfully drawing inspiration from a particular setting. There, peeping among the cloud rack, above a dark tour high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him. For like a shaft clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. Now this is a beautiful piece of prose and a particularly good example of how place and setting and the way in which place and setting are described can evoke not just an emotion, but a vision of what could be. Now the very best authors also use setting as a symbol. George Orwell, for example, used the farm in Animal Farm as a symbol for the Soviet state after the revolution, with the animals representing the different people in that state. And literary description can also set a tone for the whole book. It can create a backdrop. And we see this, for example, in Charles Dickens's book, Bleak House. Here's how Dickens describes the fog in that book. Fog everywhere. Fog up the river where it flows among green eights and meadows. Fog down the river where it rolls defiled among the tiers of shipping and the waterside pollutions of a great and dirty city. Fog on the Essex marshes. Fog on the Kentish Heights. Fog creeping into the cabooses of Collier Briggs. Fog lying out on the yards and hovering in the rigging of great ships. Fog drooping on the gunwales of barges and small boats. Fog in the eyes and throats of ancient Greenwich pensioners, wheezing by the firesides of their wards. Fog in the stem and bowl of the afternoon pipe of the wrathful skipper, down in his close cabin. Fog cruelly pinching the toes and fingers of his shivering little prentice boy on deck. Chance people on the bridges peeping over the parapets into a nether sky of fog, with fog all round them, as if they were up in a balloon and hanging in the misty clouds. Now here Dickens uses fog as a context for the whole story, and he very deftly takes us from the very general, where he says fog everywhere, and fog up the river and fog down the river, gradually to the specific fog in the stem and bowl of the afternoon pipe of the wrathful skipper, and pinching at the toes and fingers of his prentice boy. Do you see how he has taken that very general impression of fog, which he's going to use as a metaphor and as a backdrop for his book and brought it kind of in front of us by making it something that is impacting on specific characters. So in this book as well, the fog is a symbol for human misery and the human condition and to an extent the depression and resignation that may be engendered by our lot. So setting can be enriched by mood and emotion and we see with these examples as we saw with the ones earlier that the power of this language rests on the precision and clarity of the words used. So we've looked at how the very best literary fiction can powerfully transform our perception as readers of characters and their complexities and setting 
and world and place. So what kind of strategies can we take from the world of literary fiction and apply to our own work? Well, here are some ideas. The first thing I think then for us to do is to get into the habit of observation, of observing carefully the people and environments around us. We need to be as observant as we can to discern what's being said, to discern what's being felt, to discern the kind of mood and emotion that setting can present to us and to try to discern as well the complexities which reflect real people and real lives around us. And of course we can also borrow one of Dickens tricks here and move in our descriptions of setting from the general to the specific. The second thing that we need to learn from this is to portray accurately and succinctly. Once we have observed carefully we need to develop the habit of presenting what we see and feel and capturing the most subtle emotions of character and mood of place. And we need to think carefully about the words we use so that we can convey everything we want to convey, but in a precise and concise way. Thirdly, we can learn something about the way in which we should present characters and settings as symbols and moral viewpoints. So we can borrow from literary fiction the sense of using setting as a symbol. So the way in which we emotively and emotionally describe a place or a setting can present itself as a metaphor for an idea, for a concept, for a point that we want to make. The fog in Dickens' Bleak House is a good example of this. So what I'm arguing for here is that it's possible for us to have the best of both worlds if we want to do that. And although there is this persistent division between genre and literary fiction, some authors have managed to bridge that gap and in fact have shown the distinction to be quite invalid in their work. Ursula Le Guin, China Mieville, Margaret Atwood and indeed Kurt Vonnegut and J.R.R. Tolkien whose works I've quoted in this episode all of these authors show us how we can have the best of both worlds, how genre fiction can also be literary fiction. And it's not a requirement that we borrow these strategies. Nobody has to do that. You don't have to do this and I don't have to do this. And nobody should judge literary fiction as better than genre fiction or genre fiction as better than literary fiction, merely because a book falls into one or other of those categories. But the tools are there if we want to use them to enhance and improve our work and to help us reach our overall goal, which is to absorb and entertain and enthrall our reader and give them, as Solstein would say, an experience which is superior to the one that they would get from everyday life. So that's it for now. Uh, In this episode, I have quoted from or referred to the following works, the podcast Writing Excuses, and specifically Season 12 and Episode 5. William H. Coles, Writing in Story in LiteraryFiction.com. A Tree Grows in Brooklyn by Betty Smith, published by Harper Perennial Modern Classics. The History of Love by Nicole Krauss, published by W.W. Norton & Company. Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut, published by Dial Press. The Age of Innocence by Edith Wharton, published by D. Appleton & Company. Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier, published by Galantz. The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien, published by Alan & Unwin. And Bleak House by Charles Dickens, published by Bradbury & Evans and Animal Farm by George Orwell, published by Secker and Warburg. I hope you found all this useful. Just to remind you from the beginning, if you've bought a copy of the Creative Writers Toolbelt Handbook, I'd be really grateful if you could pen a quick review for it and stick that on Amazon.com. That's it for this episode. And so until next time, thank you for listening and goodbye. (music) 